Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. So first you have the riot that took place at the White House just over the weekend. Oh, I don't care if the media calls it a riot. You've got people surrounding the White House trying to tear down the fences. It was clearly such a threatening moment that you evacuated the White House. Oh, I'm sorry. You relocated staff. This took place. These uh, pro-Hamas protesters, they'll claim it's free Palestine. But since they think Palestine is Israel and they want to wipe Israel off the map, that's exactly what Hamas wants. I call them pro-Hamas. I'm clearly accurate on this, and they have no defense. I'm talking to you, Congressman Andre Carson, and the rest of the squad bigots that you hang out with. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. Good to be with you. Find everything going on at TonyKatz.com. That story, nowhere to be heard. Was not front page anywhere. But if all those people waving Palestinian flags had red trucker hats on, MSNBC wouldn't stop talking about the threat to our democracy. You understand what garbage that is. The threat to our democracy comes from the political left who flaunted the idea of lawlessness. This, of course, can be seen in sanctuary cities. New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Philadelphia, the mayor danced when they became a sanctuary city. And all that was doing was telling people from other parts of the world, you can come. The laws here are, are, have no issue. You're just more than welcome. We don't care what laws are. We'll let you in. They flaunted the law. They flaunted sovereignty. And then when Governor Greg Abbott of Texas started sending them busloads of people, they had the audacity to get angry. And now you've got the governor of Illinois, J.B. Pritzker. Oh, it's not fair to send illegal immigrants to his uh, his state and his cities. Not enough has been done. There's no doubt about that. And I think that the president needs to do more. The Congress needs to do more. Uh, cities out here that are the target of this political game that Governor Abbott is playing uh, are suffering. And uh, here in Illinois, it's minus 29 degrees uh, outside with the wind chill. Uh, we have migrants that arrive from Texas virtually every day, uh, hundreds, and uh, we don't have places to put them. We don't have enough shelter space here. There are plenty of other cities where, you know, if he's going to send people, they could be sent. But no, he's choosing only Democratic states, Democratic cities. You were the ones that were sanctuary cities. You were the ones who did this. What? And how dare you say that it's it's Governor Abbott who's playing with people's lives. The people in Texas, their lives are on the line. Those border cities are on the line. And you flaunted uh, the lawlessness. You thought it was acceptable. You thought it was fine. You did this. Stop blaming others. You're the problem. You and your ideological brethren are the problem. You're the guilty party. Now start demanding policy. Border technology, more border patrol agents, an end to this amnesty. And pathways to legal immigration that help us on an economic front and therefore will help on a humanitarian front. This can be done. But it can't be done if you're a whining, complaining little you-know-what. You did this.
and the mayor of New York, de Blasio, and, and now Adams. And yes, Adams, while he's, he's certainly not happy with this, he did not do enough to stop what New York was doing. And Philadelphia and San Francisco and the rest, you did this. Don't get angry that you now have to deal with what Texas is dealing with. This is our problem as a nation, and you made it worse. Now stop complaining and start working on making it better. That's your job now. Let's see if you're the kind of man who can do that. I'm not holding my breath. I'm Tony Katz, and this is Tony Katz Today. So every time Governor Eric Holcomb opens his mouth, it's always about workforce development. And don't get me wrong, it's important and it's boring and it's not sexy. And I don't mind the governor pushing this idea. I just wonder if he uses it as a catchphrase as opposed to something that has teeth. Say it because it keeps people from asking you other questions because nobody actually knows what workforce development is. It, it, it's it's, it's, it's mind-numbing. To say the least, although developing a workforce for the future with the skills for the future is an extremely important thing to do. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. Good to be with you. Gary Dick runs InsideIndianaBusiness.com. Find him on the X Twitter box at IIB. Catch his show in Indiana every Sunday morning. And spoke to him about this this speech, uh, the, the state of the state that Governor Eric Holcomb uh, gave and, uh, you know, so much about workforce development and how it was received. On, on workforce development, uh, I was touted as a speech really focused on, on workforce. Big issue for the state of Indiana as we see jobs coming in, jobs being added. How do you get that pipeline uh, of workers um, uh, ready to go? I don't think there was a, a you know a, a stunning headline out of that necessarily. It was really focused on things like uh, you know beefing up early education and and uh, also making more Hoosiers aware of the programs available to train and get retrained. To me, one of the big headlines uh, was the Lilly Endowment's two hundred and fifty million dollar uh, grant, the largest in its history, to the Indiana Economic Development Corporation for the state's regional. Economic development uh, program, ready. Uh, big check, $250 million will go to uh, things like uh, blight removal in communities around the state, which in some, especially some smaller communities, is, is a big issue. Uh, also, arts and culture around the state. So it's a grant. You, a lot of folks around the state talk about Indianapolis and central Indiana getting everything. The ready program obviously touches uh, on every corner of the state. So I thought that was, uh, that was significant. You know, you talk about there at, at InsideIndianaBusiness.com, Commerce Secretary Bullish on Economic Development in 2024. Uh, uh, th- that's great. Uh, they're, they're always bullish on it. There's, no, there's nothing new about that statement. Have you seen things that give them reason to feel that that's the case? Yeah, yeah, and I think if you look at the numbers, and again, these are, these are commitments. These haven't happened. These aren't guaranteed to be sure. But if you look at the numbers uh, last year in terms of economic development deals, nearly $29 billion of uh, investment commitments, 22,000 jobs. And again, to underscore, these haven't happened, uh, but the companies making those commitments. And then the Secretary of Commerce will tell you there's $100 billion worth 
of opportunities in the pipeline. Those are deals that Indiana is going after and could get in the year ahead. So the pipeline of deals, uh, according to IEDC, according to the Secretary of Commerce, uh, David Rosenberg, is strong, perhaps as strong as as it's ever been. And he, in fact, uh, suggested on the show this weekend that there will be one or two major announcements here yet in the first quarter of 2024. So I I think, yes, certainly, Tony, the Secretary of Commerce has always got to be bullish on uh, his or her particular state, and that's the case here. But if you look at the numbers and you look at some of the uh, projects in places like Kokomo and in uh, the South Bend area, Terre Haute, uh, around the state of Indiana, it would suggest that uh, there's some success being had. Talking to Gary Dick from InsideIndianaBusiness.com on Twitter, at or X, whatever we're calling it now, at IIB. Uh, one of the other stories, you got a bunch of stories. State revenues beating the updated uh, estimates. Uh, that's that's always nice to see uh, that uh, the state is is moving in a way and, and we're, we're getting people buying and sharing and, and investing, uh, et cetera. Um, how is this related to, for example, this billion dollar shortfall they had was with Medicare uh, and issues looking at uh, this legislative session, which is not a budget session. Are they taking a look at beating estimates and saying, this gives us an opportunity to do something bold in a in an infrastructure way. This gives us an opportunity to get money back to Hoosiers. Has there been any of these conversations if things are based on how they're talking about things doing so well? No, I, I don't hear that. In fact, if you look at the um, if you look at the numbers that came out, uh, the state budget agency said that uh, individual taxes came in above the monthly estimate. Uh, they said, quote, due to unusual timing factors, they're expected to normalize, as they say, near the fiscal year forecast over the coming months. So this perhaps was a bit of an anomaly in a positive uh, way going forward. So I, I, I think as you look at those numbers going up and down, uh, also interesting, I think corporate tax uh, collections and riverboat wagering collections, all above the estimates as well. So uh, a report uh, positive. We'll see how it plays out going forward, though. So let's move into some other stories, and one of them is real estate. Indiana home sales down 14% last year. And certainly you take a look at interest rates, and you're like, okay, that makes perfect sense. But you also take a look at inventory, at least in central Indiana, and you're like, what inventory? Where, where, where is it? Are the home builders still building? And why are the realtors taking a look at 2024 and saying this is going to be a good year? Yeah, yeah, 2023 uh, was uh, was a tough year. In fact, it was the first time, according to the uh, Indiana Association of Realtors, first time that annual listings dipped below 100,000, uh, first time in 20 years. So it was a tough market. Obviously, a uh, number of economic factors on the national uh, level, uh, mortgage rates obviously jumped uh, uh, in a big way. Um, the, uh, inflation, a number of factors, uh, led to that. But as you look at the inventory beginning to recover and mortgage rates becoming, you know, coming back down, I think those are the indicators. Those are the things they're looking at in 2024, pointing to perhaps a, uh, perhaps a better year in the year ahead, uh, as we look at, at what's happening here. But again, those, uh, those macro, those national economic, uh, factors, the potential, uh, for a recession or the threat of a recession, all those types of things can play into this as well. 
the recession thought, uh, which uh, a lot of people want to tell you, the Secretary of of the Treasury, Janet Yellen, we're, we're, we're in the 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 soft landing um, of that's the way it's, it's, it's going to be where it's going to happen. A soft landing would be the inflation comes down to that target rate of 2% without a recession, but the consumer price index put inflation at 3.9% when it was trending for two months in a downward fashion, 3.9 is double where they want to be. Even though the wholesale price index producer price index was down 0.1%. Uh, our uh, our economic geniuses in the state of Indiana, they see a good 2024, or do they still see the possibility, or I shouldn't say the possibility, or do they see bad times ahead? Yeah, no, I, I think the consensus, at least from what I'm hearing, Tony, is that, <clears throat> excuse me, there will be a um, perhaps the first half of the year uh, that's rather uh, slow in terms of, uh, uh, you know, economic activity. But then ramping up in the second half of 2024 will be a positive one. You know, you you have predictions all over the board when it comes to will there or will there not be a recession. But I think generally speaking, uh, things, according to the economists and those who study these types of things and see what's going on in the economy, are looking at a second half uh, uh, that's pretty strong in 2024. First half, uh, perhaps a little bit uh, a little bit slower but not an overwhelming number of people saying, hey, yeah, there's going to be a recession. So a lot of people feel that we can get through this. Is there a feeling uh, that uh, if it does the state take a look at this and say, if recession comes, we could do this or we could do that? Are you hearing that the General Assembly might want to engage things differently if, if recession comes? I'm not saying it will. I'm asking, is this stuff that they normally think about prepare for? Yeah, without question, uh, as you look at um, strategy and look at uh, just like a business would, would, would look at those types of things. And businesses around the state are looking at those uh, those types of activities. But if you look at uh, from a business standpoint, some of the expansion uh, projects that are, are taking place around the state of Indiana uh, would point would seem to indicate that businesses uh, are, are, are somewhat bullish uh, on, on 2024, but beyond. And, and that's an important part. They're not planning for a year ahead. They're looking five to 10 years ahead as well. So absolutely uh, looking at those those types of factors and where the economy might be, uh, if the economy might slip in some uh, fashion uh, and, and head south and what that might bring. So all those, all those factors obviously are, are, are taken into account uh, on a regular basis. And right now, I, again, I, I think the predictions in terms of the economy and where things are, how things will be in Indiana, a manufacturing state, uh, which, uh, you know, typically leads into a recession, but also comes out of a recession uh, in a big way. Uh, a lot of folks will be looking at states like Indiana and these manufacturing states in the Midwest. Gary Dick inside IndianaBusiness.com on the Twitter Xbox at IIB. I appreciate you as always. I can't say it enough. I had this conversation the other day. Oh, oh, I went out in the cold. I went out in the cold and came back and the pipes were frozen. Not everywhere in the house. Not everywhere in the house. Just the, 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 the master bedroom, uh, the shower, and, uh, and, and the sinks. And weirdly enough, we have our laundry room in the master because everything was on one floor. And with the kids, it was always easier. So my wife's like, I want it in there. I'm like, yeah, sure. Good by me. Smart idea. So so we do that. So I assume that that's also totally, totally hosed. I can't shower and I can't wash uh, any clothes. I'm going to smell peachy.
like a dream. It's a, it's a very pungent aroma. Stings the nostrils. Um, but I was having the, the, this conversation uh, or, or on, on Sunday that, you know, the, the, the governor discusses wanting to teach computer science as a mandatory class. I, again, for this workforce development piece, and I'm, I'm not opposed. I just think it's a mistake because we're making a statement by doing that. We're saying that everybody has to code. And no, not everybody has to code because not everybody is going to be good at coding. Not everybody is going to want to do that, to, to uh, sit behind a, a keyboard and do that. Not everyone's going to have the headspace for it. Why put them into something that isn't for them as opposed to let the opportunities be known that it could be for you? And I don't mind having the courses. If you ask me what's more important, coding or Spanish, I would tell you coding. And I'm not against learning Spanish. But the idea of being forced to learn a language, I would, I would agree that language should be Python over French. If you want to teach kids something that is fundamental to their existence, I don't know how we're not doing it. It is how to balance a checkbook. It is how to invest in stock. In stocks, in, in bonds, in, in, in uh, all sorts of funds. We have kids all across the state of Indiana. They can tell you everything about Nikes. The new Jordan that's coming out, the new this, and the price of this. They're going to StockX. They're already kind of in this. Why not teach them how to do it in real money? What's more valuable, having 10 pairs of Nikes or having 10 shares of Nike? Now, you might tell me, well, the pairs of Nike, depending on the Nike. And that's a good thing to teach. Investments come in all different ways. Investments have all different methodologies. Let's learn how to do the basics. Start by covering yourself and paying yourself first. Start by learning how to build up a fund and what a retirement is and what kind of money you're going to need for the future that you want to have. The NBA, the NFL, name the, the, the arena. They all teach these, these, these rookies how to deal with money. Why aren't we teaching freshmen how to deal with money? We should be looking at surpluses in the state of Indiana and saying, how do we create funds for students that they can then build upon so they can have these dollars towards Indiana opportunities, maybe a fund to invest in that will allow them to buy their first house in the state of Indiana. Or, 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 guys, I'm spitballing, but it, it, it's, it's as a concept, we're better off if kids can balance a checkbook. Every kid balancing a checkbook is more important than every kid coding. It is. The fundamentals that lead to self-sufficiency that will then lead to opportunity. What does it matter if they can code if they don't know how to pay their bills? What are we doing we are putting the cart so far before the horse you cannot see the horse. Let's step back. Let's talk about basics. Let's teach basics. And let us be economically proficient and fully economically literate in the state of Indiana. We can do this. And that's that we could totally lead the way on this subject. Completely lead the way. I have no idea why. How is it possible I'm the only person talking about this? That's just nutty. Just nuts. I wish the governor had consulted me before giving a speech, but yeah, that was never going to happen now, was it? I'm Tony Katz. This is Tony Katz Today.
Uh, so if I'm going to now rank the weird things in nature, I will admit to you that for me, the top one is the goat. Goats freak me out. I don't know why it is. There is something about the eyes, the whole movement thing. Very freaky. The thing that confuses me the most is the cicada. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. Good to be with you. Because I don't understand how this thing hatches. Why is it living so long underground? Why Why? It, it, why does it come out when it comes out? And what happens like in 2024? Not only are we going to have the insane eclipse that is going to take over huge swaths of, of America, we have not one but two broods of cicadas coming out, which I assume means things are going to get very, very loud for us. Gene Kritsky joins me right now. Dr. Kritsky retired as the Dean of Behavioral Natural Sciences and is a professor in the Department of Biology at Mount St. Joseph University in Cincinnati, Ohio. Also did some work at Indiana University. Uh, And this is his... I don't know if I'd call it your expertise, sir, but rather uh, uh, a, a, I will call it a field of study if I'm not allowed to say expertise, but you'll correct me if I'm wrong. And you are quoted everywhere about this not one, but two broods of cicadas that are going to make a very weird year uh, in parts of the Midwest. Let's start with the basics. What in the world is a cicada and how does this pattern work? Well, certainly. Uh, we're talking about the periodical cicadas. We also have annual cicadas that come out in, in July and August and September uh, in Indiana. But uh, the periodical cicada is a, uh, a group of seven species. There are two life cycles. One is uh, one 17-year brood. Those, those come out once every 17 years. And then there are four species of 13-year cicadas that come out once every 13 years. And the, three, the four and the three species, especially, emerge together at the same time. And uh, the, uh, as opposed to the annual cicadas, they come out every year, but we don't know how long their life cycle is. But their life cycle is 17 or 13 years. And back in, uh, back in uh, uh, 17 and 13 years ago, uh, that's when the eggs were laid in the terminal branches of trees. The eggs hatched back then. The, the, the immature insects, the nymphs, crawled out of the egg nest and dropped to the ground, immediately found their way below the soil. And they dug down, oh, about between 8 and 10, 12 inches uh, that first year uh, to suck on a tree root. (laughs) And then for the next 17 or 13 years, they've been just sort of tooling around, not moving more than probably one yard in any direction, uh, sucking on tree roots. And uh, then come this spring in May when the soil temperature reaches 64 degrees Fahrenheit and also after a nice soaking rain, then they really pop. They, They just come out and big numbers. And uh, I'm talking about big numbers. The most I've ever measured myself is 356 per square yard. And that would correspond if that was uh, that, again, they only come up under trees. They don't come out in in open areas like a baseball field or whatever else like that. But in those areas where they, they did lay their eggs, they can come out at the rate of about one and a half million per acre. And that's enough to make me never come out of my house again. But I I, I think the, this whole idea it's not so it's not a, a gestation of 13 years they're alive they're under the ground how how are they surviving we take a look at the cold that we're having right now throughout the midwest mm-hmm. uh, temperatures in, in the negatives that's not below the frost line how are they surviving that 
well, many many cases they're down far enough to below the frost. Uh, the the of course here in Cincinnati uh, and parts of southern Indiana, the frost line's about seven to eight inches down. They're usually a little bit below that, and when they're down at that level, the average temperature is fifty six degrees Fahrenheit. Now they're not they're moving around, but they're not moving fast. <laughs> I've dug these things up many times. I when I when it, when it's not a cicada year, I have to go dig them up because I miss them. <laughs> so let's see what they're doing down there, but. They will, they'll shed their skin uh, uh, four times underground, uh, and uh, then they, um, uh, they're sucking on a tree root, making tunnels, and as they, as they get bigger, they'll move a little closer to the, uh, the surface, between four and eight inches below the ground by the time they're getting close to coming out. And so uh, we forget about them. That's what makes this such a big deal. You know, we, the year they come out, they're, they're massive numbers. We, we, um, we sort of freak out, <laughs> and then we forget about them for another 17 years. That's like a generation if it's a 17-year cicada. And uh, they come out in these massive numbers to overwhelm their predators. Uh, Talking, the, oh, uh, now, like, well, let's hold on a second. Now we got to get into it. Talking to Dr. Gene Kritsky of Mount St. Joseph University, who in the world is the cicada acting as a predator towards? Everything. Uh, birds, dogs. Cats, chipmunks. I've seen turtles eat these things. Snakes eat these things. Even a few people have eaten these things. Uh, it's a, it's an, uh, a nutrient bonanza once every 17 or 13 years, depending on what brood is emerging. And uh, uh, that's their whole survival strategy. And uh, I've likened it to what we would do. If you walked outside today and you found the world swarming with flying Hershey's Kisses, what would most people do? They would eat the Hershey's Kisses. Wait, they might they might be afraid first, sir. A guaranteed, if they're flying candy, there might be fear. But they eat the kisses. I'm not sure I get the point. Well, the point is they'll eat and eat and eat to the point where they just can't eat anymore or get tired of eating them. And there's still millions of cicadas left after that to reproduce. And that's their survival strategy. So the, the, the part of me thinking this is super creepy is absolutely accurate, that uh, it's, it's living underground. You use the wonderful vernacular of sucking on tree roots, which is enough. Uh, it's it's, it's, it's was a, the movie Tremors, I believe. And now you've got them eating everything in, in, in sight. It's, it's one of these reasons why when you hear that there's going to be these two broods happening at the same time, that's what they call them, broods, how often mm-hmm. does that occur? And honestly, uh, throughout my beloved Indiana, throughout your, your Ohio, exactly how many of these things should you be expecting and when? Okay. The, uh, the idea of a brood, it's like a year class, and so they come out once every 17 or 13 years. In Indiana, it's sort of a, a, a bipolar situation. Brood 13, which I have been studying since 1990 when I measured the uh, uh, emergence there, is only going to come out in the northwest corner of the state. It's going to emerge in, in Lake County, Porter County, and LaPorte County. And it's just restricted to that upper, upper band there, those counties. And it's not going to be uh, every, every square foot. It's not going to have cicadas emerging. It's going to be sporadic because if you go into an area and you clear cut for agriculture and remove the trees, the cicadas can't survive there. And so urbanization, cutting down the, 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 the woody plants, the trees, uh, and for agriculture and urban development, that's made the, the cicada populations less dense in those areas. And the, now brood 19 is at the other end of the state, and uh, I've only been able to find it in the extreme southern end of Posey County. 
So when we when when the it happens, it's happening. What months? What are the months I'm looking for here uh, that I sure. should know that I should absolutely be armed at all times? <laughs> they will start emerging when the soil temperature is 64 degrees Fahrenheit, which is usually uh, back before 1940. It was towards the end of May. Now it's uh, occurring in uh, in uh, the probably the first. Uh, between 10 and first 10 and 15 days in May. And that'll be uh, down for Posey County. We'll be down uh, uh, probably early May. And then by the time we get up to uh, for brood 13 in the Northwest, that'll probably be late May, probably the, maybe even back in 2007, they came out on the 7th of June. Well, these they things... Started, the first one started popping around the 26th and 27th of May. Will these things start flying to other areas? I mean, do they have a distance they can travel, or do they, usually, do they usually stay in the same locale? They stay pretty much in the same locale. They can spread about, uh, fly about a, oh, I'd say at most probably about a mile per emergence. Uh, they're rather clumsy flyers. They don't fly great distances and what have you. But uh, and that, they, they spread out when the female cicada is looking for trees to lay her eggs in. And if it's a really heavy emergence, a lot of those prime egg-laying sites are going to be already taken by the time some towards the end of the emergence. And uh, so those females will have to look for a little further afield for trees. But uh, I've, been, I've actually studied the housing development where uh, in the 90s they cut down all the trees and then put in the infrastructure, the, the sewer lines, the power lines underground, and then they built the houses and then named the streets after the trees that they cut down. And, <laughs> and uh, no cicadas emerged there. So the next because they need, but they, they flew need the in from they, they flew in from about a quarter mile to three quarters of a mile away. And you don't think any of the crazy cold that we are witnessing is going to have any effect on the fact that these these killers are going to be out in a few months? Well, they're not killers necessarily, but no, the the the, the frost will not have an impact on them at all. Doctor Gene Kritzky. I swear to you, the, the the cicada freaks me out, and and very few things uh, do. Uh, goats, cicadas squirrels but i don't like to talk about that one dr gene kritzky he is from mount saint joseph university before i let you go is there a positive of cicadas like is there something that they provide uh in in the ecosystem that brings value yes there is in fact when they emerge from the ground in the in, in may they leave on these holes the diameter is about the size of your pinky as the summer progresses the the clay soil the clay in the soil hardens it and that provides like a natural aeration for the soil. So when it does rain heavily in the summer, that rain doesn't just uh, roll off the, the, the ground, but actually some of it goes down those holes and helps uh, give the trees water. When they come out of the ground and, and start flying, they are food for all sorts of predators. That's a, an opportunistic feeding opportunity to actually allow for uh, uh, increased populations of their predators. Uh, we know, for example, during a, a, a cicada emergence years, the, the turkeys, the wild turkeys living in those areas, the males that are taken during turkey season actually have a slightly higher body weight. The females, when they lay their eggs in the trees, sometimes that causes the branch where they laid their eggs to break and sort of snap and dangle there. We call that flagging, the leaves turn brown. And that's like a natural pruning. The flower set the next year is even bigger than it is on the, on the average year. And that's beneficial. And then lastly, when they die, the carcasses collected the base of trees and i'll tell you the stink you'll never forget that stink when you got millions and millions of pounds of dead cicadas all over a given area as they decay those nutrients go back in the soil around the tree where they died this is where they probably laid their eggs in many cases as well and that's a nutrient cache for the trees going forward
No, you're 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 selling it, sir. You are selling it so, so one, well. One, one more thing that's <laughs> very important personally to me. Right. Periodical cicadas got me tenure. <laughs> well, finally, something they've done well. Uh, it's it's one of those weirdo, fascinating things. And since uh, we're gonna get hit twice with it, I figure we might as well understand what we're dealing with. Doctor Gene Kritsky of Mount St. Joseph University in Cincinnati. I appreciate you taking the time to be with us. More is coming up. I'm Tony Katz. The weather and the caucuses, the caucuses and the weather. I mean, it's just the it's just the story. Isn't that right, Leo Terrell? I've said it for the last three weeks. You cannot trust Vivek. Oh, oh I was talking about the weather and, and the caucuses. Ah, good Lord. I didn't I didn't know you couldn't trust Vivek. Why is that, Leo Terrell? He is not a Trump supporter. He's wait. Hold on. Why does that mean I can't trust him? The Trump hater. Well, so he hates Trump. So, so Vivek, who's been doing nothing but praising Trump, uh, uh, hates Trump. Greatest president of the 21st century. That's what Vivek Ramaswamy said, Leo Terrell. But now he hates. Now he hates. I'm, I'm, I'm confused. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. Good to be with you. Anything else, sir? This guy is in the race to hurt Donald Trump. Vivek is only interested in Vivek. He uses Trump's slogans to trick you. I've been a lawyer for 30 years. I know the game. I've read this guy. This guy is a slick con man. Vivek is not in the race for Trump or for America. He's in the race to satisfy his ego. You're right, because nobody runs for president to satisfy their ego. That's never happened to ever. <sighs> Did I say hello? I forget. I love that video. That video gives me joy you know, in a, in a, in a, in a way that I cannot, cannot possibly describe. Look, all the, all the Trump supporters... Are, are very clear that Trump's going to win huge. Is Trump going to win huge? Uh, maybe. If, if look, if the poll, if it goes by polling numbers and he wins by those kinds of numbers, it's game over. Nothing else matters. And then, of course, there's there's the conversation of the rumors. And one of the rumors is uh, Trump and and Nikki Haley have already worked out the deal, and Nikki Haley's going to be vice president. <laughs> I don't put any stock in 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 rumors why why would i why would i put who knows what's gonna happen that's why i waited for today what i did say and i i was clear about it last week clear about it earlier clear about it again i think this weather puts itself in a great place for uh ron DeSantis. The true believers are these DeSantis people who have stuck with them through the bad campaign, the bad polling. They'll come out. That's my take. I don't know if I'm right, but it 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 it, it is a rational argument, and thus I make it. And if if DeSantis doesn't win, there, there's no there's no place for him. If DeSantis does not win Iowa, there's no more money. It's over. Over for Ron DeSantis and 
Listen, I'm not happy about that. DeSantis is, is the guy I want. DeSantis is the guy I want. In, in this field, DeSantis is it. But if Trump's the nominee, I'm going to vote for Trump. And if Nikki Haley's the nominee, I'm going to go, okay, I'm going to vote for Nikki Haley. But, Trump, but DeSantis cannot get into New Hampshire, never mind New Hampshire, South Carolina, where he needs to be, uh, without a win. Or, or at least a second place. Nikki Haley has options. Of course, Trump has options. He, he, he does. Is, is the Trump team worried? Of course, a lot of people have been discussing this. Uh, to the extent I, I would say yes, the idea that his team would come out against Vivek or come out against this one, nothing, nothing surprises me. It is the, the, the uh, goose step movement of all of his supporters that all say exactly the same thing. That is what bothers me. It, it's, it's, it's just weird. It is weird, and I'm saying it's weird because it is. No one says, hey, wait a second, I support Trump, but I don't believe that's true. No, 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 I all believe it all at once. But then again, when, you're, when your largest online supporters are people like Laura Loomer, what else are you expecting? What else? This is what you're going to get. So how about we, we uh, don't freak, we don't lose our minds, Let's see what happens. Once we know Iowa, we can figure out the rest. By the way, the weather in Des Moines uh, tonight is going to be negative eight. Negative six to negative eight. Perfect weather for a caucus. Find everything at TonyCats.com tomorrow, everyone. Take care.